Welcome to Madang Podcast, hosted by Christian Sentry. Today's special guest is Zach Hunt, who is a popular blogger, writer, and ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. Today he shares his book, God Breathed, God as She, Imperfections and Contradictions in the Bible, Council of Trent, Ezekiel and Dry Bones, and so much more. What if the contradictions in scripture aren't an accident? What if they were allowed to be there by the Holy Spirit? As provocative as that might sound, it is in fact an ancient way of understanding scripture. God Breathed, what it really means for the Bible to be divinely inspired by Zach Hunt, offers a practical approach to reading the Bible. As the disillusioned leave the church in droves, this book allows the Bible to be what it is meant to be all along, a source of life, hope, and freedom for all. Theology Beer Camp is happening October 19th to the 21st, 2023, in Springfield, Missouri. It will be three days of Craft Nerf Dom with your favorite God podcasts. The goal is to create a pop-up community of people who enjoy quality podcasts, and this year will be another epic Theology Beer Camp. Please register today. Please join me at the Wild Goose Festival July 14th to 16th at Union Grove, North Carolina. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. Wherever we come together, we learn and grow by co-creating art, music, story, theater, and spectacle, engaging in a wide variety of robust, courageous conversations with each other and with thought leaders and artists from other communities. Please join us this year and use discount code MADONG to get $50 off registration. Listen to Dr. Graham Joseph Hill's new podcast, Faith Across Borders. Dr. Hill is the co-author of Healing Our Broken Humanity and has launched this important podcast. Faith Across Borders is an inspiring innovation, discipleship, and mission by connecting Jesus followers with the movements and wisdom of world Christianity. Please subscribe, support, and listen to his new podcast. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang Podcast. Today's special guest is Zach Hunt. He is a popular blogger, writer, and ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. His writing has appeared in Huffington Post, Christianity Today, and Relevant. And he has been cited in pieces, including the Boston Globe, the New York Magazine. Hunt is a graduate of Yale Divinity School and lives in Tennessee with his wife and two daughters. Connect with him at zachhunt.net. We are so excited to be here today on Madang Podcast to discuss his latest book, God Breathe, what it really means for the Bible to be divinely inspired. He has a lot of great endorsements, and Sarah Bessie writes, what a winsome, accessible, and wise invitation to an evolving view of scripture. Zakant is a good guide for anyone, for everyone who wants to love the Bible, while knowing that taking it seriously doesn't always mean taking it literally. I think she did a great job summing up kind of what your book is about. So thank you so much, Zach. I know you're busy. So thank you so much for coming on, Madame, today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm honored. It's great to be here. Yeah, so excited to have you. Um, when I was looking you up, you said, well, it says that you love to travel. So I don't know if you want to share any exciting travels that you've had or anything fascinating that will be coming up that you want to share with the listeners. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I really do. Uh, my wife and I both love to travel and to take our kids. We're really blessed with kids that, that travel well. Um, we went to Morocco over New Year's um, last year, which was an amazing trip. Um, we went to Casablanca, um, Fez, and Marrakesh, and got to camp in the uh, Sahara Desert and ride camels and just do all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, our next big trip is we, we tend to do because my wife's uh, uh, job schedule, she's a physician. And so like work is kind of wonky. And so the holidays tend to be our time to get away. And so this Christmas, we are um, taking a, a 
circuitous route around Northern uh, Europe and we're flying into Dublin and going to Northern Ireland and then Edinburgh for a couple of days and then Finland for a couple of days. And so we, we, we try to pack in as much as we can um, to see as much as we can when we can. Um, but, but yeah, when we have those opportunities, we love to see uh, new places and, and, and get new experiences, you know, that we've never had before. What the, what kind of a physician is your wife? She's an OBGYN. Oh, that's so good. Now, my oldest son will be going to Yale Med School this oh, awesome. fall. Yeah, and I know you're a graduate of Yale, so that's yeah. exciting. He doesn't know what he's going to be doing. But anyway, that's exciting that your wife um, does what she does. And I've actually been to Marrakesh, and that was one of the most uh, fascinating places for me. Did your kids enjoy that one? They did. Um, we, they were... Um... I think a little tired by the end of it, but mostly because we, <laughs> we had some really long days in the car, um, okay. but, but they were troopers. You know, I, I think their favorite thing, we met some expats over dinner. Um, and when we were, well, we were camping, it was more like glamping um, in, <laughs> in the desert. Um, but we got to, uh, or they got to go uh, sledding down the sand dunes um, wow. with some kids their age. Yeah. And oh. Wow. Um, just had a, an absolute blast. So yeah, I, I, I don't think that they complained too much, which was a rarity, you know, for them. Um, I think the, it was so different, you know, like just from what they're, um, used to, I mean, you don't typically walk down the street and see people charming, you know, Cobra, uh, Cobras, you know, on, on the side of the road, um, or, you know, drinking that tea, you know, three, four, five times a day. Um, oh. But but they loved it. They did they did just a, a fantastic job. Um, I love yeah, travel. Most of my travels are with work, so I was just kind of stuck there in Marrakesh. So oh, yeah. I didn't do any of the exciting things that you did. But I did go to that open uh, market. I believe. Yeah. Oh, isn't that the most fascinating place? I bought so many of their leather bags. Oh yeah. I was so excited to buy them, and then I haven't really used them much. <laughs> You know, I did the same thing. We went to Fez, which is where their famous, you know, leather tanneries are, uh-huh. um, where they use pigeon poop to like cure the leather. Um, oh, so it's very pungent. Um, they give you like a, a sprig of mint to hold in front of your nose, you know, when you go to um, see all the buckets, because they are not buckets, the the pits, because they do it by hand still, I guess, by feet. And um, you <laughs> see, them, you know, going through and um, I got a bag and my my wife and kids, we all got bags, you know, cause that's the thing to do. And I think my wife's the only one that uses hers. Uh, <laughs> and I was dying to buy them. And I went back right. and forth so many times to the market. And then I finally bought like three or four all for the kids too. And nobody's using them. Same. I, I pick, I know for sure, for a fact that I picked my kids up off the ground, uh, their bags uh, just the other day when we were picking the room up, picking their room up. And I was like, well, I'm glad we spent money um, on these bags that are now, <laughs> underneath your bed uh 24 7 so but, but it's a good memory yeah it's a great memory yeah. I'm so glad that we both I've been to Dublin too and the time we were there it rained the whole time so I hope that when you go this uh summer that it won't rain it, we went in July and it rained so much actually it was very cold it was like I felt it was like almost winter cold but anyway okay. I hope that your uh weather will be much better than when I went I hope. Well, we're actually going in December, so it probably will not be. We're going to, um, we picked just the worst time. Um, we're actually, I mean, we're going north of the Arctic Circle uh, in December. So we, um, wow. yeah, we, they, they provide, uh, the group that we're going with provides, you know, Arctic suits. Um, but we definitely took advantage of the uh, after winter sale. So if you need a winter jacket, um, I highly recommend buying one in March. Um, they, they mark them all down and we found some good sales. That's so good. I hope um, your family will have a wonderful trip there too. That sounds like an exciting trip. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on Madang to discuss your latest book, God Breathe. It's actually such a beautiful cover and I was really honored to endorse your book and you got a whole bunch of wonderful endorsements. So that's always so important when a book comes out. So before we get into it, how did you end up um, or what motivated you to write this book? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I've been telling people that this book and really all, all my writing in general, but this book in particular, I think is, is me um, working out my faith in real time. You know, it's it's me, uh, like I said in the book, searching for 
you know, a faith that's worth believing in, you know, I, like a lot of people, you know, I, I grew up um, one way and as I got older, kind of shifted another direction, um, you know, with my faith and, and, you know, for me personally, it's something I still want to hang on to, but, you know, I want a faith that's, that's worth living out that, that, you know, Jesus that's worth following and, and a Bible, you know, that's worth reading. And, you know, I think that there's other folks out there as well um, that, you know, maybe you're going through deconstruction, maybe they've already gone through that, you know, maybe they're getting ready to, um, you know, and, you know, they're not wanting to abandon their faith, you know, altogether, but you know, aren't satisfied with what they, you know, maybe inherited or what they grew up with. And so what I'm trying to, you know, offer, you know, folks is the same thing I'm trying to find for myself, um, you know, is another way forward, um, you know, particularly with scripture that is intellectually honest and and spiritually healthy. Wow, that's exciting. And I know you're like big on social media. You got so many followers on Twitter and I can't keep up with all your tweets, but I know people have been tweeting about your book and then you are kind of responding to several of the tweets. What are most, I don't know, what are people mostly saying? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of like two extremes, you know, typically Tell us uh, the two extremes. So I, I did for context, um, cause it's probably getting more attention. The book did a, a billboard campaign, you know, here in Nashville. Um, I, and, I can't believe you did that. That's so exciting. I want one for my books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, digital billboards are the way to go. I know people, um, uh, I'll put you in Dutch, uh, but it's, it's been, it's gone well, I think, I, I hope, you know, we'll see if, if that, you know, if the attention translate to book sales, um, you know, which is obviously the goal. Um, but, you know, what we, what the idea was with the campaign was to sort of reappropriate the way that, you know, fundamentalists like to take, you know, verses out of context or just one verse to, you know, damn people to hell for whatever, or, you know, make their own billboards. You know, if you live in the South uh, of the United States or just drive through um, the interstate, you're going to see, you know, Jesus signs, you know, everywhere. Um and so the idea was to kind of take that and flip it on its head a little bit and offer things that were a little more hopeful, maybe a little more provocative, um, but definitely different. And so folks have either like really loved them. Um, and and that's been overall, you know, most of the responses I've gotten. Um, and curiously enough, a lot from, you know, atheists and agnostics um, mm-hmm. who, you know, appreciate being told or not being told that they're going to hell, you know, and to find something, you know, unexpected coming from a Christian, um, something that actually sounds like good news, you know, and, and instead of the bad news that we usually, you know, are known for. Um, you know, and then the other is extreme of that is, you know, you're a heretic, you're, you're, you know, going to hell, you're your false teacher and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I do like to engage, you know, at least some of those, I mean, I can't, you know, obviously engage all of them. Um, you know, it would take, uh, there's not enough hours in the day. Um, but I do like to engage a lot of them because, you know, I, I think that a lot of us, um, particularly if we grew up in the church, you know, assume that we have a good handle, you know, on Christianity, on the Bible, on the history of the church, on what it means to be Christian. Um, and then, you know, the words that we like to throw around a lot, like orthodoxy, you know, and heretic, and we think we know what those mean, but a lot of times um, they just mean, you know, orthodoxy just means the beliefs that I agree with, and heresy just means the things that I don't believe with, don't believe. Um, and so, you know, I, I've tried to push back and challenge folks um, you know, to be specific, you know, I, I don't mind if you disagree with me that, you know, my feelings aren't hurt and I'm totally used to that. And even if your criticism is harsh, is that, that, that's okay. Um, but, you know, I want to challenge folks to, to push through their assumptions, whether they be progressive, liberal, conservative, you know, or think they're somewhere in between, you know, uh, what are those assumptions that you have about the Bible? You know, are, are those assumptions actually true? You know, what, what does church history say? What does church tradition say? And so, you know, when I talk about things like biblical inerrancy, which is, you know, a big core theme of the book, um, and, you know, folks are like, oh, you're a heretic, this is, you know, Christian orthodoxy, well, what is the heresy? You know, what is the church council, the creed that says this? Because these are very specific things. And so um, I, I, you know, maybe I, it's a sick pleasure of mine that I, I enjoy debates and arguments like that, but um, it's been good. And, and I try to retweet them, you know, quote tweet them so that other people can kind of see the conversation so it doesn't get buried. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely been interesting and um, and eye-opening in, in some ways. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you enjoy that because for me, I get a little bit more hurt when <laughs> people start critiquing. So I'm glad that uh, you're okay about it and that you are quote tweeting them. I'm actually wondering if they even read your book because- Oh no, definitely not. 
<laughs> just, just, I think they're just looking at the billboard or whatever you're tweeting, and I don't think they've actually read the content of your book. Oh, absolutely, and and that's you know always the you know I don't know if fun is the right word, but uh -huh. well, I assume you meant blah blah blah, and I'm like, well, you know, it, there's a literal web address on there in big letters you follow, you know, and to get more information about this and usually takes about, you know, five or six tweets before you get them to recognize, oh, okay, you're serious. There's actually a website and I could go look at this. And then they, they usually kind of quiet down a little bit because it answers their questions. But um, yeah, the uh, most of the folks that um, have been more um, vocal in their disagreement uh, definitely have, have not read the book. Okay. <laughs> That's so good. Um, I thought, you know, you wrote, you wrote the book um, with like the beginning of the book, you talked about the title, God Breathe, and whether you should have used the hyphen or not. So I found that discussion really interesting. So how come you decided not to use the hyphen? Um, you know, I, I think, let me step back. You know, God breathed scripture, you know, is a phrase, again, if you grew up in the church that, that most of us are familiar with in some respect, you know, we've at least heard it, um, you know, and there's the general consensus, you know, that that word or that image means inspiration. Um, uh -huh. you know, the, the disagreement happens on, on what does that inspiration, you know, look like it, for some folks, it, it means that, you know, God uh, verbally dictated the Bible um, to the biblical writers for some you know, God, uh, you know, guided the hand, uh, you know, physically or spiritually, you know, of, of the writers. One of the more interesting um, ideas I saw while doing research, or I guess read while doing research, um, was the notion that God um, manipulated the context and circumstances and life of the biblical writers in such a specific way as to influence them in just the right way to have the right thoughts and patterns that God, which, you know, points for creativity, you know, that that's certainly one way to look at inspiration. But, you know, I think um, for me that that hyphen just has this like, it's purely aesthetic and it's purely wow. personal, but, and it kind of invokes this sort of mechanical nature to it. And, and I think that that's kind of the idea that a lot of us have with the idea of inspiration is there's, there's some sort of, it's a literary mechanism, right? That, that God somehow you know, form this Bible in some sort of magical, mysterious, mysterious way. Um, and I wanted to really push back on that to to, to try to re recapture some of the organic nature, you know, of inspiration and and to challenge folks like we did again with the billboard to rethink some of those assumptions that, that so many of us, you know, in the faith have, um, you know, about the Bible and what it means for it to be the inspired, you know, word of God. Uh-huh. And, you know, how people approach the Bible is um, like from one point way to the other point. That's why writing a book like this, you know, you're going to hit so many nerves on so many people. But anyway, I think it's an important book because, you know, you are dealing with these issues. And I always struggled with it myself growing up in a very conservative evangelical church. And, you know, how do you deal with the problems that are in the Bible? So I think it's such an important book. Um, and then the other point is when you talk about God, you also use the pronoun she, and I appreciated it, but I'm wondering, um, so tell us how you kind of made that process of using the pronoun she. Sure. Um, yeah, as, as a general rule, you know, I try to avoid gender pronouns, you know, at all, um, when talking about God, but, you know, as I'm sure you know, well, you know, as a writer, it, it just gets clunky, you know, um, if you just say God did this and God inspired God's people to God. And so it just becomes God, 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 God. And so just from a literary perspective, like you need something else in there other than just saying God, um, you know, and I don't want to, uh, there's no need, I guess, for me to reinforce, you know, patriarchal norms that have, you know, undergirded scripture and our reading interpretation. And so this goes back to, again, you know, some of it is subverting you know, assumptions, but it's not subverting just to subvert um, because there is, you know, feminine language for God in scripture. Um, you know, the Old Testament, you can look in the the prophets and of the Hebrew Bible who use feminine language to talk about God as a mother. Um, and it's something that Jesus picks up on as well um, in the New Testament, in the gospels, when he's, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem and talks about, you know, how he wish he could, he was like a mother hen that could, you know, gather his chicks together under his wings. 
um, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, is traditionally often, or at least, you know, she is, is, is used to describe the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, one wanted to subvert the norms of, or the assumptions that we have, um, you know, about how the Bible portrays God, um, you know, because I think we have very clear mind or clear picture of that in our, our minds, and it's not necessarily, you know, accurate to the biblical witness, um, you know, and then especially given all of the debates that, you know, we're having now about gender language and, and the, the anger that so often and comes from the church, um, you know, I thought it was good to remember that, you know, the God that we worship is is beyond gender, you know, and is and is encompassing of all genders. And um to to label God as he or even she, you know, if we went down that way, you know, the opposite direction, but to bind, you know, God is to to put um God in an incredibly small box. And so so yeah, I, I like subverting things, but you know, again, it's it's not subversion for subversion. It's 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 to make a point that that this is also the biblical witness. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that because uh, feminist theologians have been doing it, but it's always great when male authors and theologians do it too, because, you know, we, you know, we've been pushed. And once we use these feminine languages and the imagery from the Bible, they just shut us down. But I'm always grateful when men just use it because, you become an ally and you are supporting what many women have been already doing. So I was really happy to see that. So thank you for doing that. And, Absolutely. Um, I, I yeah. was raised by strong women. And so <laughs> the idea of, of God being feminine is in no way a, a, a mark against God. I, I don't know what the problem is with, with using she, I mean, I do, you know, but um, absolutely. No, my mom would yell at me if, if, if I didn't. Okay. And you've got two daughters, you said? I do. Yeah. I do. So you're surrounded by women. So. <laughs> yes. My, my my wife's a doctor to women. I've got two daughters and yeah, no, it's, it's all women around here except me. Yeah. So I'm glad. I was really happy that you were able to use she, and I hope people who read your book will rethink um, who God is because, you know, we could only come up with limited number of words and words help us to get a deeper understanding of who God is. And I think the feminine feminine pronouns and words and um, images are so helpful for many of us who are struggling to figure out who God is. So I was really happy to see that. And then you talked about the Holy Spirit, which is, you know, for me, that's the big area that I love to write about these days. And you wrote that the Spirit doesn't force her way into our lives. And I thought that, you know, I had to sit back with that because in some of our church images, we have the Pentecost where it's like coming down upon us, you know, like a forceful coming down. But here you write about how um, the spirit doesn't force her way into our lives. And I don't know if you wanted to say a bit more for us listeners and what that kind of means for us in our Christian daily life? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a Wesleyan tradition and, you know, we we believe in the idea of prevenient grace that, you know, God is at work everywhere and always going before us, even if we don't realize it. And so like, I know for, you know, my fellow you know, Wesleyans, it can seem almost like a contradiction a little bit there. Um, but I think that, you know, there's an important difference between God standing ready to offer us grace and like God shoving it down our throats. Um, if I can make that, you know, distinction, um, you know, which is, I think, important for us pragmatically, you know, just as people, especially if we talk about evangelism and sharing the faith, you know, the difference between standing and being ready to extend grace to our neighbors and then trying to shove, you know, that message, you know, down people's throats. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the spirit is ready and and willing and wanting to to do whatever it is God wants to do in our lives. Um, you know, but to borrow from, you know, C.S. Lewis and and the Narnia books, like, I, I think God is a little bit like Aslan in the sense that the God likes to be asked, you know, that God doesn't want to force, you know, that that's just not who God is. I mean, if we, if we say that, you know, in Jesus, we see God fully revealed, and we don't, we see God that, that doesn't force, um, you know, his or her way, you know, into anyone's lives. I mean, Jesus doesn't force anyone to follow him, you know, people even, 
the, if, if anything, the opposite, you know, you have the rich young ruler who shows up and Jesus basically sends him away. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that dynamic is really important, you know, to capture that, that God, um, has given us a very real, you know, freedom and, and, and is seeking very real, you know, relationships. Um, but once we do open that door, there is, you know, responsibility and some pretty incredible callings, you know, that God places on our lives. You know, I, I end the book with the, the image of Ezekiel, you know, in the Valley of the Dry Bones. And it's, it's one that, you know, again, that, that we all know, but there's this really bizarre is maybe not the right word, but you know, I don't know any other way to describe it where God essentially tells Ezekiel to tell God what to do. Um, you know, he, God tells Ezekiel to, to command the wind, you know, to breathe the spirit, you know, into these people. And the word there is the Ruach, you know, it's the spirit of God that God breathes into the dirt, you know, in Genesis. And so the idea of God letting us tell God what to do is, is very interesting and intriguing to me. Um, but yeah, I wanted to capture that that freedom, you know, the freedom that God gives us and the freedom that we need to give God, you know, in our lives to let God move and breathe and um, inspire us, you know, to live out our calling. Yeah, I, you know, that the way you ended the book with Ezekiel, I thought that was uh, very thought provoking, because I've always struggled with that passage. But, uh, you know, you're talking about the breath of God and the the life that's given, which is actually exactly what Ruha, the word that you mentioned, the Hebrew word means, the breath of God. That's why I actually really love your cover and the title of the book. Job. I was like, gosh, if you didn't take that title, maybe I could have used <laughs> for some one of my books coming up or something. But anyway, it's a great um, kind of title and ending it with Ezekiel. In other parts of the book, you also talk about, you know, we can't, I'm just quoting you, we can't excuse away our prejudices, bigotry, uh, misogyny, and racism with Bible verses. So when we look at American history, for one example, it's full of this um, misogyny and racism, bigotry, and prejudices with the, you know, with the genocide and then enslavement, segregation, indentured workers, you can just name it, it just goes through our whole history here. So many people use the Bible, you use weaponized uh, to legitimize their own actions, misogyny, racism, etc. So how are we supposed to kind of deal with this? Are we misusing Bible? Share us some of your thoughts. Absolutely. You know, I, I would preface it with a, a recommendation, say um, Martin Noel, I think, wrote this. Yeah, Martin Noel wrote a book called uh, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis that really captures this dichotomy a lot. Um, you know, it's it's more academic a little bit in nature, but it's not very long. You know, I think it's under 200 pages, but he, you know, uh, walks through a lot of the sermons and the rhetoric going um, preceding the Civil War and during the Civil War from, um, you know, pro-abolitionists in the North and, you know, pro-slaveholders in the in the South and showing how they're using the same book, um, you know, and they're using the the clear word of God to to make, you know, their points, uh, you know, it's it's enlightening and also frightening because it's similar and if not the same as, as what so many people do today. And, you know, I use a couple, you know, specific examples that we get into in the book, but, you know, I could write an entire book, you know, going through the different examples and trying to break down verses. And so what I really try to offer with God Breathe is just is more of a guide, a, a rule, um, but not just as a place to start, but also to finish. And for me, you know, that was really what's really important about um, what Jesus tells us, you know, in the greatest commandment. And then, I, you know, I echo um, Augustine, who just basically repeats Jesus. And, the, you know, we all know the beginning of that with, you know, love your God, the, the, the commandments, you know, love God and neighbor. But that second part is really important when he talks about all the law and the prophets hanging on this command. You know, for a lot of Christians, you know, we kind of brush past that because, you know, we don't follow the law and the prophets because, you know, the New Testament and New Covenant, all that kind of stuff. Um, but what Jesus is really saying is, you know, everything in scripture, because, you know, there wasn't really a Bible then, um, but everything that, you know, you read in scripture has to be guided by, um, but not just guided by, but also lead to uh, this two form or this two 
this double love, you know, of God and neighbor. And, and that's what Augustine says, you know, 400 years later when he says, you know, no matter how great, you know, you think your interpretation is or how many proof texts or how clear you think this Bible verse is, if it doesn't lead you to love God and neighbor, then you're wrong. And so what, what I, what I'm trying to encourage folks to do is to use this um, as, as a foundation, but also as a finish line so that when we come to these passages, we can't take from them, even if they seem clear, like slaves obey your masters for it is right in the Lord. We can't go out and tell people to obey their master for it's right in the Lord, because that's not loving, no matter how, you know, you try to slice it. And so this is for me where, you know, another church for uh, church father origin comes in and says, you know, there are certain things that the Holy Spirit allows to be in the scriptures like this, that origin calls stumbling blocks. And he says, you know, they're in the literal sense of the scripture to draw us deeper into the spiritual sense. And so when we do that and we come to these passages, well, then we're equipped, not just by these church fathers, but by Jesus himself to say, well, we cannot take this literally, or we cannot read this literally, even if it seems literally, even if Paul meant it literally, because it does not lead us to love. And so what that opens us up to is this deeper spiritual meaning. And there's no gymnastics, you know, mental gymnastics that have to be done here. And there's no real, you know, secret code or anything that, you know, you need to unravel. It's it's the simple truth that Paul himself echo or de describes when he talks about seeing through a mirror dimly, you know, mirrors aren't windows, you know, it's not something we're looking through. It's something that's reflecting back on us. And if we look at scripture as a mirror dimly, then what we see when Paul says something like that, or the, you know, the Hebrew Bible writers say something like, you know, take your children out back and, and stone them to death. What we see are, are humans. We see people getting it wrong, just like you and I get it wrong, you know, all the time, all of us, whether we're writing the Bible or writing blogs, um, you know, we, we get it wrong sometimes. And sometimes we get it wrong in the name of Jesus. And sometimes we get it really badly wrong. And so for me, that opens up a whole new conversation, you know, about the Bible, about our role in interpreting the Bible, and, and then how the Bible is supposed to be applied um, you know, in our everyday lives. Well, it's one thing to get it wrong, but what, what about those who intentionally use it um, to say, oh, it's okay to be racist, it's okay to be sexist, you know? So what do we do with that, that when people are using scripture to legitimize their actions? I don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> we, we, we say that, um, well, I would say twofold. One, uh -huh. uh, they're wrong. Um, okay. and, and it doesn't matter what Bible verse they have because okay. the foundation is Jesus, right? And uh -huh. so like for me in my theology, you know, I begin with Jesus and everything kind of flows out because it's Jesus that I find compelling and revealing and it's in Jesus that I find good news. And so if Jesus is going to be my foundation rather than the Bible, even though, you know, I know about Jesus through the Bible, but if Jesus is going to be the foundation, even of, you know, my understanding uh, of scripture, then I look at at him and his teachings. And what does Jesus say was the foundation? And Jesus says love. And it's not loving to be racist. It's not loving to be misogynistic. It's not loving to tell people they're going to hell for loving people, um, you know, or loving the quote unquote wrong people. And so, you know, for me, it's twofold. One, it's pointing out that um, you can't be unloving in the name of Jesus, no matter how many Bible verses you have, because that is anti-Christ in the most literal sense of the, of the word. And so it doesn't matter what the Bible verse is. But what I try to push folks to do even more um, in the book is to say that it's okay to admit that the Bible is, is it's itself wrong, that when they teach these things, that sometimes they teach things that are just immoral um, and that we would call them immoral in any other context, in any other book. Um, so why shouldn't we do that here? Why shouldn't we be open and honest about our dirty laundry and embarrassing secrets? Because the Bible is, you know, the, the story of the Bible and the people of God is the story of murderers and adulterers and thieves and prostitutes, you know, and outcasts and obscure people. And the Bible doesn't try to hide that. And so what, what, what I want, I think that our responsibility as Christians is to be intellectually honest about the Bible and say, yeah, the Bible does actually say that, you know, when, when the slaveholder said, you know, here's a Bible verse that, you know, allows me to justify slavery. They were right. I mean, that, 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 that's in the Bible. I, I can't do, you know, take that out of the Bible, but I do have to confront it. And what I have and what I can do and what I think origin and Augustine, and again, Jesus allows us to do is say, Paul was wrong. Um, slaves should not obey their masters because slavery is bad or whoever wrote, you know, those words. Um, because again, um, that foundation and that 
the foundation is, is, is a call to love. And then the destination of the finish line, which is, you know, what we read about in Revelation is, is an eternity, a life of love. And so if, you know, our lives as Christians are bracketed by those two things and driven by a spirit in, in between to live a life of love, then again, it, it doesn't matter what Bible verse these people have, even if the Bible verse seems clear, if it doesn't lead us to love, then we're wrong. And, and so are the biblical writers. Yes, thank you. I think everybody needs to hear what you just said and then go read your book too, because I think that will solve so many problems that um, we are facing today. Because even whether they call themselves Christians or not, there's enough biblical verses that people are aware of, and they'll just spit it out and say, you know, this is what the Bible says. Um, to legitimize any of their actions. Absolutely. So I think looking at the context and understanding the whole big picture of the Bible right. is so helpful um, in our walk with God and trying to understand this Bible that Absolutely. we are kind of required, or I don't even know if that's the right word, that we read. <laughs> anyway, in your book, you also um, talked about the Council of Trent which was very interesting. I didn't expect to see that in there, um, but you put it in and um, you discussed it was first called in 1545 and then held again in 1563. So for our listeners, what is the significance of this Council of Trent? Great question. Um, so the, the context you know, of, of the council itself you know, is the Reformation. Um, the Council of Trent is held or is called by uh, the church in Rome to respond to Martin Luther and the reformers. Um, and they, you know, uh, do a lot of things at the council. Um, you know, they definitely draw lines in the sand, you know, with the reformers um, on various theological doctrines. Um, but what was relevant in the book is this is where the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, closes their canon officially. Uh, and what's, you know, interesting to me and, and what I'm hoping to convey with you know, readers is, that was 500 years ago, not 2000 years ago. Uh, you know, it, it's part of the story of the Bible's evolution. Um, you know, if, if we can use that word, you know, there was certainly a, a mostly closed canon, um, you know, in the fourth century Nicaea, you know, and you have some church fathers that write about that. And there's a generally agreed upon, you know, list of verse of, of, um, of books, you know, that people are using for that. 1200 or so years, you know, in between. So it's not like people are just freewheeling, you know, there's definitely a bound sort of Bible. Um, but when you have the the line in the sand that Luther draws and that the you know, church in Rome draws, um, you know, they're starting to put brackets on things or trying to starting to write things down and define things very specifically, because like Luther, um, he didn't do this, but was not opposed to just kicking out like the book of James altogether um, because it didn't align with, you know, his theology. And so what, what's going on in this broader conversation is, is the concept of what we call orthodoxy, you know, and, and why, and what I'm trying to show is that that word, that concept has a very specific meaning, um, you know, because the Catholic church is defining, you know, their canon um, over and against the Protestant reformers, but there's also um, Ethiopians uh, doing their own thing in their own tradition that dates back just as old as Rome does, you know, or Syrian Christians. And so, you know, you've got really competing orthodoxies um, in, a, in a little bit of a sense. Um, and that's not to include the Eastern Orthodox Church, which split in 1054, um, 500 years, you know, before, before, um, uh, before Trent. And so, you know, the, the point of including that um, is to really try to help readers understand the broader story of the Bible, that one, it didn't just drop down from heaven. Um, the two, like it wasn't um, part of this, you know, Da Vinci Code cabal at Nicaea where they, you know, secretly burn books or something like that. What's going on is they're affirming the books that are already being used in, in the community or in the church um, that people have already, you know, felt uh, not felt, but that that they see or they recognize is 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 proclaiming the good news, and so that's mostly agreed upon. But when you start splitting things, you start getting different different opinions. Um, and so what the Catholic Church is doing is drawing lines in the sand. They're defining their canon just like Protestant churches will go on to do, just like these other traditions will do. Um, but in the bigger the bigger point that's going on there is this idea of orthodoxy, because what's going to be what gets pushed back. Uh, towards me and will be, you know, with the book is this idea that biblical inerrancy or that the idea that the Bible is perfect and without flaws in any way is some sort of ancient orthodoxy when it's not. 
Um, orthodoxy is a very specific thing that is proclaimed by councils um, and by creeds, but it's also in a very specific context. Like you need a unified group because orthodoxy is the, the, the right belief for a particular group. And so anything after 1054, um, when you have this massive split, it, it can't really be defined as orthodoxy because you don't have this unified agreed group. Um, and that goes, you know, even with the Bible uh, today, like, you know, we have slightly different list of canons. We, we all have the same 66 books, um, you know, Catholics and Protestants, but, you know, they have the Apocrypha. Um, there are other traditions that don't, um, don't really uh, regard revelation um, as, as scriptural, or they don't use it in their liturgy. And so, it's more of this subverting expectations, but also really just trying to teach the story of the Bible, um, not the not the stories in the Bible, but the story about the Bible, because it's one that I don't think most of us really know that well. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's true. And just on a side thing, do you think it should be open? <laughs> do you think the Ooh, canon should be open? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I, I make the point in the book that the Bible is a living document. You know, we, we talk about the constitution, you know, that way. I think it's more so true for the Bible, you know, cause we're constantly um, engaging with it in, in new ways. Um, we're constantly getting, you know, new insights um, and new archeological evidence, new textual evidence, you know, things like that. Um, but if the Bible is going to be, if the Bible really is the story of the people of God, the story of the people of God didn't stop in the first century or, or the second century. Um, now, what you would include, you know, what people would add. And that's where, again, you get into the problems of now we have, you know, 30,000 denominations or something, you know, around the world or traditions. Um, you know, who, who gets to make that decision? Um, you know, I don't know. But I mean, there are works that I think would be helpful. Um, you know, I like to ask people that, you know, if you could include anything or add something to the Bible, you know, modern, you know, what would it be? Um, for me, you know, uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, you know, I think would fit perfectly um, along Paul and uh, would would definitely subvert some of those misogynistic, racist sort of, um, you know, claims on scripture that, that we were just talking about. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, so thank you for that uh, reflection. I think that's so interesting. Um, you also write that the New Testament is largely a collection of letters and they are not immune from pseudepigrapha. So, if you wanted to share with us what that means and what are we supposed to do with this information that you included in the book? Right. Um, well, I can tell you one thing. That's a word that um, <laughs> I realized during my audiobook recording that I write a lot, but don't pronounce a lot. So if you hear the audiobook, I don't even know how I pronounce that word. Uh, <laughs> um, it's in, a hard word to say. I, I had a hard time saying it now, too. I thought you nailed it. And so I'm, I'm really just... <laughs> making doing cover for myself so that uh, when I butcher trying to say it that anyway um so what it, what it means you know is that that someone else's name has been attached to a letter or a gospel so that um you know that famous person you know Paul or Matthew or whoever um is giving credit but they may not have actually been the person to do that um, now this you know can be contentious it can be not contentious um there are people who believe in biblical inerrancy who are okay with this, believe it or not, um, who recognize that um, not all of the letters that are ascribed to Paul, you know, were necessarily written by Paul. And the reason, you know, we we think that, um, or the reason scholars think that, you know, is the language is very different. Um, you know, there's, you can get into nuts and bolts of words that, you know, appear here that don't ever appear there, um, trains of thought, you know, or theology that doesn't quite line up. Um, you know, for example, you know, the Paul who said slaves obey your masters and women be silent. Um, that same Paul also said, you know, in Christ, your new creation, there is no male or female slave or free, you know, Jew or Gentile. And those things don't really, you know, line up um, very well to be from the same person. Um, and so, um, you know, there's an ancient tradition of that. Same thing with the Gospels. I mean, they were almost certainly not written by the actual apostles um, because their writing dates to when those guys were probably, you know, dead. Um, but for the, you know, the early church, that didn't really matter. Um, you know, what, what's happening is the whoever did either write these letters um, or these Gospels or compiled them or edited them, um, you know, recognize that they needed authority behind them, you know, and so you give give them these authorship, uh, give them the authorship of Matthew or Mark, because these people are authorities, because they're disciples, because they know, but they're not just making this stuff up, um, 
necessarily offhand, just like with the letters of Paul, it could have been, you know, his apostles that wrote it. Um, it could have been them copying. It could have been sort of, you know, whatever. Um, but what I try to get, the point I try to make in the book is that ultimately that's not really important because the reason those books got included in the canon wasn't because, you know, the, sorry, my neighbor has decided to, uh, weed whack apparently my yard um which is what it sounds like in, in outside my window um, um but what what i try to get to or the point that i try to make in the book is that we need to step back and rethink um the concept of truth itself um you know because what made the stories of the bible true both the hebrew bible and the new testament um for the people of god wasn't their historical accuracy though that you know was you know of some importance um but it wasn't because you know the story of, of Moses and, and Exodus, for example, wasn't true to people 3,000 years ago because they had archaeological evidence, you know, to prove it. It was true because they had experienced that liberation, you know, or that hope or that promise or or whatever it was in their own lives. And the same is true for the New Testament. Um, you know, it, it's it's less important. I mean, it's important, you know, for the early church that Paul wrote them. But the reason they're included is because those truths resonate you know, with the church, because those truths resonate with the gospel, because they they have seen those truths played out in their own lives. And so um, who actually wrote them literally, you know, with pen and, and ink is less important than um, whether or not we see the inspiration, you know, whether or not we see the spirit at work. And so even if, you know, Paul didn't write the letter to, you know, fill in the blank, if we see the spirit at work, you know, it's okay, because, you know, God can work through ink imperfect communicators okay yeah i could hear the weed whacker going around um I'm so maybe... sorry the timing yeah, that's okay one other question then um about the biblical inerrancy and you say one of the first things they point to are the bible's scientific and historical inaccuracies this isn't a coincidence the bible is full of them because this isn't exactly breaking news the bible is not a science textbook or a history book so I don't know if you want to say something more before the weed whacker is going out of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's finally moved on to the other side of the house. Um, okay. I want to be like, you know, did you did you look in the mirror and see that I was doing this? And like, I need to cut the grass right now. Uh, the joys of living in a neighborhood. Uh, yeah. So you know, one of the criticisms from the inerrancy crowd towards those of us who don't refer him, you know, inerrancy is the notion that, well, if we can't trust the count in Genesis, for example, um, of creation, then how can we trust in any of it as if, you know, the Bible is a giant house of cards that, you know, falls if you take out inerrancy. Well, if it if that's true, you know, um, we need those folks in particular um, need to step back and, and do some real, you know, assessment, like how weak is the Bible? How weak is the testimony of the people of God that this one card can make everything tumble, um, tumble down? But yeah, we we need to step back and realize that the Bible is is not a book, you know, in, in the sense that we write that you or I, you know, write books today. You know, it, it's a collection of text. You know, it's um, a lot of people talk about it as a library. Um, I like to think about it as as kind of an anthology in the sense that like it's not just you know uh, a library like you would go to you know and find whatever random haphazardly collected books at your local library. You know, it's a very intentional collection. Um, that's trying to tell a very, you know, particular story. It's trying to tell those from different angles. Um, but, you know, if something is said and maybe is inaccurate or on the other end is just poetic or metaphorical, that doesn't mean that that theme or that issue carries on to every single book in the Bible. Um, because the book of Psalms is is nothing like one of Paul's letters. You know, the Gospels, you know, are nothing like... Um, you know, the book of Revelation, um, even, you know, it's apocalyptic literature. And so, you know, we, this is, again, trying to subvert expectations and trying to get us back to our assumptions about what this is. And when we do that, we realize, well, you know, this maybe isn't quite as unified as we thought it was, or if it is, it's not in the ways that we thought that it was unified. And, and if we can get, look at, if we can step back and say, well, what, what is the point of this book, you know, or, or this Bible? And if the point is to communicate the story of the people of God, um, you know, and the the truth of the good news, that truth, you know, isn't found in scientific facts or, you know, historical details. You know, the, the truth of the good news is found in, in the life and teaching of Jesus. 
um, and, and into life, death, and resurrection. And so we can believe, or we can say, you know what, Genesis 1 and 2 is, is a metaphor or a myth or a creation story or a poem or, or whatever, um, and say, you know, I still believe in a historical Jesus. And those two things can live side by side because, you know, Genesis and, and, and Matthew are, are not at all the same book, and, and that's just not how the Bible works. Well, thank you so much, Zach. It's such a pleasure to meet you on Zoom and to have this wonderful conversation on your latest book, God Breed. I hope many people will get a chance to read it and give it away um, to their friends and family. It's such an important book, such an important discussion for us today because people are misreading and coming to the Bible in wrong ways to legitimize some bad things that are happening um, in our society today. So thank you so much. It's such thank a pleasure you. to have you. Okay. And I wish you the best in your trip coming up in December and all your other future trips that you do with your family. It's such a joy to have you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was an honor. And um, I think we'll see each other at Wild Goose. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. What if the contradictions in scripture aren't an accident? What if they were allowed to be there by the Holy Spirit? As provocative as that might sound, it is in fact an ancient way of understanding scripture. God Breathed, what it really means for the Bible to be divinely inspired by Zach Hunt offers a practical approach to reading the Bible. As the disillusioned leave the church in droves, this book allows the Bible to be what it is meant to be all along, a source of life, hope, and freedom for all. Theology Beer Camp is happening October 19th to the 21st, 2023 in Springfield, Missouri. It will be three days of Craft Nerf Dom with your favorite God podcasts. The goal is to create a pop-up community of people who enjoy quality podcasts, and this year will be another epic Theology Beer Camp. Please register today. Please join me at the Wild Goose Festival July 14th to 16th at Union Grove, North Carolina. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. Wherever we come together, we learn and grow by co-creating art, music, story, theater, and spectacle, engaging in a wide variety of robust, courageous conversations with each other and with thought leaders and artists from other communities. Please join us this year and use discount code MADONG to get $50 off registration. Listen to Dr. Graham Joseph Hill's new podcast, Faith Across Borders. Dr. Hill is the co-author of Healing Our Broken Humanity and has launched this important podcast. Faith Across Borders is an inspiring innovation, discipleship, and mission by connecting Jesus followers with the movements and wisdom of world Christianity. Please subscribe, support, and listen to his new podcast. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.